Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that puts this stuff together. Silent night, holy night. All is calm, all is right. Round your virgin mother and child. getting better acquainted with Christmas again this time it's quite a sad and dark one but then Christmas is a time of ghost stories and family complications as well as cheer and light and so we're going that direction for this episode but there is some light right at the end to balance it out because you can't have dark without light. You can't have light without dark. Jesus, Lord, and thy It's quite hard sometimes to decide on how to give a content note for a piece of fiction because some fiction is about discovery. It's about finding out things. And sometimes that fiction might be about finding out dark things and complicated things. And you don't want to give them away because some of the joy of the experience is in the discovery. Although it's really up to you if you'd prefer a content note that gives you an idea of what's going to happen, even if that does spoil the narrative of the fiction. Skip ahead to around 40 minutes in. The story that I'm going to read to you today is a story that I wrote. It's a piece of fiction. The process of writing it was about trying to address some things. It's a little bit Christmassy, which is why it's part of the Christmas episode. After it, there's going to be a a nicer bit of an old recording of my dad reading me a Christmas story. If you're feeling like you don't want to hear something with some complicated elements, probably this isn't an episode to listen to. 
This story isn't very much about Christmas, but it does have some complicated things in it. I don't want to tell you what they are because it's a ghost story. It's a detective story. And those kind of stories are about discovery. With all of that in mind, go forward at your own risk. But please go forward because I really like this story and I'm really pleased to be sharing it with you. It's kind of my Christmas present to you. Uh, It's called Bringing Things Up. I check the body. My body. It doesn't feel like mine. It feels like I've borrowed it from someone and forgotten to give it back. I'm wearing a suit, but it isn't one of my work suits. The collar is too tight. It feels wrong an unfamiliar texture. There's a tie around my neck. I want to gag, but it's a reflex that I don't have. It fails me. The first thing I see is the night sky. It's dark out there, but not the darkness I've been forcing my body through. The blackness is expansive, not restrictive. It's filled with stars. I scrape away more of the earth and manage to push some of my face out of the ground. I imagine gulping, gasping in the fresh air, opening up my lungs and sucking in everything. But it's just my imagination. I'm not breathing. I was waiting in the dark and nothing was happening. I waited and waited and waited. Then finally, I moved. I push my left arm up and thrust it into the night. I grab at the grass, clutching at its wiry blades. I yank my other arm into the night. It's like when I was a child, pulling my jumper on, that big woolly one that always stuck around my head. I push my left arm up and thrust it into the night. One last yank and the jumper was on. I should feel sad. I lean against my own gravestone. Ben Garner, husband and father, gone but always remembered. A nice enough epitaph. It doesn't try too hard. It doesn't stand out. I like it. I'm dead. You don't come back from that. But I have. I'm not breathing. I'm not hungry. I'm not thirsty. I'm cold. But the cold is the right temperature for me. I get the feeling that if I warm up, it won't be nice. It's better to be cold. Cold is comforting, like chocolate pudding. I brush soil from my collar. It's important in my job to make an impression, so I carefully select all my tailoring. This suit just isn't my style. But it is familiar. I've seen it before. This is one of my father's suits. I frisk myself. Nothing in my pockets, no flower in the buttonhole. I unzip my trousers, black boxes. I realise someone else has put these on me. Why bother? When mum died, we left these choices to other people. I zip myself up. I clean the earth out of my fingernails. The skin underneath is blue. Cyanosis caused by lack of oxygen in the blood. Poisoning? Blood clot? Drowning? Heart failure? So many options. None of them fun. I've made as thorough an inspection of the body as possible. I can hardly send myself to a lab. I suspect I haven't died of natural causes, but it's hard to say for sure. So now what? I haven't had a case like this since leaving the force. It's all following people and poking around in their bins these days, finding out who's screwing who and why. 
There's a fog inside my head. It's hard to access information. I start studying my memories. They shift about, squirming like insects afraid to be pinned down. I can remember some things, faces, voices, Helen, my little boy Marcus, things we've said and done, the way they feel in my arms. I can't remember dying. I don't seem to feel strong emotions. I feel love for my family, but not intense love. I loved them. It is a fact, simple, sensible, straightforward. I'm not scared. I'm not shocked. I don't have a need for explanations like when I was alive, but I don't really know what to do. I can't stand here all night. I walk down the gravel path, past other people's graves. I hum a half-remembered tune. I'm standing on a narrow bridge with fences on either side looking down at a motorway. Cars rush by beneath me, full of people who have a purpose, so busy, so noisy, so full of life. I don't know where I am. I don't think I've been here before. I'm surrounded by a city, but I don't know which one it is, and I have no money in my pockets. Without money, my options are limited. This is how dreaming felt. Watching yourself move through the world, feeling a connection to it, a familiarity, but not fully understanding anything. You know the places you move through and the people you meet mean something, but you aren't sure what. Everything is fluid. I don't like dreams. My job was to see things, to tune into the world that's how you track down a missing person. That's how you catch a cheating husband. You spot the little things. Observation plus long hours and boredom. It's great for parties. And what do you do? I'm a private eye. I like putting it that way. All 1950s and Bogarty. I'm not a private detective. I'm a private eye. And currently, I need to find some money. I focus on moving. My body works differently now. Moving requires more focus. I walk the streets for hours until I know where I am. Moving requires more focus. I'm in Finsbury Park, so I'm in London. I work in London. My office is in London. Moving requires more focus. I'm on the wrong side of town, but I don't seem to get tired. I don't seem to get hungry. I can walk and walk without a break and I don't feel bored. The room looks wrong. This is my office, but someone has moved things round. I brush my fingertips across the windowsill. I know where I am in space, but not in time. I trace a question mark in the dust. The cleaner hasn't been for a while. This place isn't mine anymore. It's in transition. It's becoming someone else's. At least the spare key was still under the paving slab, though. There's a photo frame lying face down on the desk. I pick it up. It's the picture of Marcus. I like to be able to see him when I'm working. It calms me. He's smiling, trapped in time, frozen in an emotion. I wonder where he is. I want to be with him. I remember grieving for Mum. I imagine him grieving for me. I flick the switch on the coffee machine. I'm not thirsty, but I want to hear it. 
I know every gurgle and rattle it makes. I close my eyes, focus on its sound. I imagine I'm back underground, and for some reason, this makes me sad. But there's no question of tears. Tears happen to the living. My eyes are empty. I key in the combination and the safe clunks open. I take out a wad of twenties and the emergency phone. I flick through the numbers, but I can't bring myself to ring anyone. I try to put my mobile into my pocket, but it's been sewn up. I rip it open. There's lavender inside. I turn the pocket inside out. Dried flowers float down. The man at the depot doesn't really seem alive. His skin is nearly as grey as his moustache and he hardly moves. The sounds of the city are so loud it feels like we're sitting on either side of a desk in the middle of the road rather than his office. With a sudden movement, he chucks me the paperwork. He doesn't say anything. I remember trying to sign my wedding document, my shaking hands forming spidery old lady letters. It looked like someone else had signed, like someone else was marrying her. I lean the paper against the car and scribble my details into the boxes. I press some notes into his hands. He gets up slowly and takes one of the car keys from the hooks by the window. He throws it to me and begins to shamble back to his desk. I don't wait for the change. I'm driving along the familiar flat roads that curve and swing the car around. The roads are occasional creases that look like they've been ironed in by accident. This higher car feels lighter than my Land Rover. The wind farm appears over to my right. The blades are turning slowly, moving with great weight and control, endlessly generating electricity. The turbines keep turning. There's no sense that they will ever stop. They're silently churning for eternity. I go through memories of Marcus the way I scrolled through microfilm before everything went digital. I only see happy scenes, playing on the beach, watching him toddle and trip. Now I'm holding Helen's hand as we look down at him sleeping, his face flickering with a smile as he dreams. Feeling warm from the wine we've been drinking, I whisper in her ear, at least we got something right. There's something tight in her reaction, something tense. I can't tell what. I get hints of Helen, but only when she's with Marcus. She's a taste I can't place. My head's too full of Marcus. In every memory he seems happy. Was he always happy? That's what I wanted for him, happiness. A perfect childhood full of sunshine and innocence. I'm glad I'm being flooded by images of his life, not mine. His is the better film, the one where you feel uplifted, the one that makes you feel happy to be alive. I hear the sea in the distance. It's the sound of home, but it seems hollow. Maybe it sounds as it always has. Maybe it's me that's hollow. Maybe it's me that's hollow. If you want to know what the world will look like after it's ended, come to Dungeness. I'm looking out at its white sky and beached boats. My house is behind me. I'm stealing myself to turn and look at it again. It's hard. I never liked this place. 
We only live here because of Helen's job. We made a deal. Our house would be a pearl surrounded by the sludge of this oyster. We'd make our family beautiful. I remember reading Marcus' comet in Moominland. The comet dried up the water and they walked across the bottom of the ocean. That's what Dungeness looks like. The bottom of a sea that's evaporated or maybe that's soaked away. The boats and the ramshackle sheds dropped onto the land. Everything compacted by the weight of the ocean. The snort maiden liked pearls. And didn't she wear oyster shells to look pretty? I can't quite remember. Those books. The Moomin books. Marcus loved them so much. A snatch of conversation. Helen wearing pearl earrings to make her gran happy. She doesn't like that sort of jewellery. She wears chunky stuff, wooden squares and bright acrylic. She doesn't have her ears pierced. Her gran had bought her clip-ons. This town isn't an oyster. It doesn't have an interesting shell. The withered plants are bleached and wind-battered. The landscape is level and even. Marcus used to say there should be tumbleweeds blowing through these streets. Coming here from London feels like being blasted by radiation. The city is stripped away like melted flesh. I don't know if I felt this before, but it's how I feel now. Odd that I do feel now. Strange that I can feel now. I don't understand it. I look out across the scruff from my balcony. The sea is especially blue. The light must have changed. I glance at the spot where I stood earlier. I wished that I'd stayed there. The sea is especially blue. The light must have changed. The beds are unslept in. A good chunk of Helen and Marcus's stuff is gone. The beds are unslept in. I want them to be here. But they aren't. The sea is especially blue. The light must have changed. I have to speak to Helen. I take out my phone and look at it. I bring Helen mobile up on the screen. I can't bring myself to press call. I need to see her face to face. I drive towards the nuclear power station. She still has to work, doesn't she? Maybe they're staying at her mum's. She could commute from there. I pass barren concrete buildings surrounded by barbed wire, spiky gorse bushes with shocking yellow flowers. The buildings I used to call the shacks that looked like they were thrown together by Robinson Crusoe. Lonely houses with piles of logs in front of them. In between each landmark is the usual dull green and grey landscape. I don't pass any people. I feel like I'm the only man alive. But I'm not alive. There's only one other car in the car park. Two boys throw stones at a bin in front of the station calf. Occasionally one hits it with a clang. Seagulls yelp at each other above all this, bickering and swirling. The dark, ugly presence of the lighthouse towers above me. The small steam train sounds its mournful sound, belching out smoke and steam. Beside the power station are the electricity pylons, like metal giants standing in formation, an army that towers over you, ready to march. I imagine them moving, churning up the ground. For some reason, they seem to be laughing. Beside them stands their master, the power station itself. Cold, hard, industrial. 
I walk up the concrete path towards it. Something holds me back. I turn away and walk past the red and white gate. Even with no fence or guard, it still manages to look like something from a Cold War spy film. I pass the sign that gave Marcus nightmares when he first read it. Things little kids shouldn't know about yet. Hazards during a nuclear emergency. Exposure to radiation by inhalation, ingestion, absorption through open wounds. Could cause harmful health effects. I don't have to worry about any of that now. I reach the concrete and step onto the ledge of stones that forms the sea bank. They look like an alien landscape. They scatter from my feet, each one skittering like large marbles on a shiny floor. I used to play marbles with Marcus. I like playing old-fashioned games with him. No bright plastic figures. I wouldn't let any of that modern tat in the house. Only natural colours and positive messages. He'd complain sometimes that the other kids would tease him, but he didn't really mind. He didn't have his friends round as much, that was all. I didn't mind. I liked the fact that I had him all to myself when he was at home. The wind cuts into my cheeks and forehead. I enjoy the sensation. I scramble up to the top and stare out at the sea. In front of me, some men are fishing. I wish I was one of those men. I turn back and look at the power station. It fits so well. It's like this place was made for it. I take out the phone. I bring up Hello Mobile and press call. At the other end of the line, the phone rings and rings and then stops. It doesn't click through to her voicemail. I want to hear her voice so much. I scroll down one to Helen work. I press call again. Will she pick up? I listen to the ringtone. I look down at the stones. For a minute the colours, browns, oranges, whites, greys draw me in. I feel so completely calm. I imagine my body blowing away in the wind, leaving only a skeleton that topples and shatters on impact. Its broken fragments scatter. They lie amongst the stones, waiting to be rounded. Hello? It's a man I've heard before, but not very often. I don't know his name. I turn back to the water. The sun is coming down between the clouds. A pale spotlight hits the waves far out at sea. Then there's a moment of real sadness. A physical thing. A clench inside my stomach. Hello? Hello? The camera lens zooms out again and I'm pleased to find I'm watching my emotions from a distance. But I remember feeling it. It felt real. It was strange to feel again. Hello? Silence. <sighs> I'm hanging up. The waves crash down on the shore. The sounds and shapes around me blur, making the stones into the sea and the sea into the stones. The seagulls glide as if on strings. The air is a different substance for them, something they can touch and push against. They turn their heads and spit shrill sounds at each other, and I suddenly see the reptile in them, the dinosaur. I envy their ignorance. I envy their bright ease. I press call again. Hello, the man says. Is Helen there? 
I'm surprised to hear my voice. Look, mate, I don't know who you are or why you think this is funny, but I need to talk to her. She isn't here. Where is she? Who is this? I don't reply. Who are you? What do you want? I don't reply. I'm so sick of these calls. Look, who the fuck are you and what do you want? I'm Benjamin Garner. I'm looking for my wife. I need to talk to Helen. My voice drifts away, leaving my body. Ben Garner's dead, he says. Where's Helen? You know where she is. Where is she? You know. Tell me where Helen is. She murdered her fucking husband, you sick fuck. She's in jail. Don't call here again. He hangs up. The spines of the Christmas tree pushing through the wool of my jumper, pushing into the skin of my back. His hand locks me into place by clutching my arm, his fingers tight digging into my flesh. They seem to clamp around the bone. I feel like there's nothing to me. I'm watching the scene from above. I don't want to be in my body. His eyes are intense as he stares into mine. He is calm, but he's holding the rage back. It simmers underneath. His voice is all frost, but he has too much heat. You've made your mother cry. The job of children is to try and keep adults happy. Try to keep them from crying. Try to keep them from shouting. Keep them from grasping you by the arm and pushing you back into the Christmas tree. John Lennon is singing, war is over. My father's eyes are staring down at me. The job of children is to keep the peace. I always failed. I always got it wrong. I never knew what the wrong move was until I'd made it. It might be putting a dish down on the dining table in the wrong way. It might be making a noise when I should be silent or being silent when I should have reacted. Maybe I left a toy in the wrong place or made a silly joke. It could be opening the wrong Christmas present on Christmas day. Any action could upset an adult. What I wanted was for them to be happy. They were beautiful when they were happy. They were beautiful when they were happy. It's actually a parent's job to look out for their children. I know this now. Parents control the world that their child grows up in. I know what my job is supposed to be. That's why I've tried so hard to make Marcus's world safe. My dad raises his hand and slaps me. He's never hit me in the face before. The tree is shaking. A bauble falls. And then I'm in a different room. A child stands on the settee in front of me. His face is eye level with mine. My child. My beautiful child. Why am I always watching myself? I'm such a fucking coward. My mind is red and black and bright, bright white. That's all I can see. And it hurts to feel all this anger, but it also feels good. I'm disconnected from it, absolved of responsibility for it. My body is a wind-up toy and it's been wound up so it has to carry on. And in that moment I lose myself and I feel truly free. And it feels so good. I'm screaming. 
My mind is red and black and bright, bright white. That's all I can see. And it hurts to feel all this anger, but it also feels good. I'm disconnected from it, absolved of responsibility for it. My body is a wind-up toy and I've been wound up so it has to carry on. And in that moment I lose myself and I feel truly free. It feels so good to hurt someone. To allow all your inadequacy, all of the unfairness of life to pour out of your body and into someone else. And words are not enough. They are never ever enough. The anger needs to move. It longs to connect with another person. It wants to touch someone it loves. I raise my hand back and then swing it full force into Marcus's face. I've never hit him in the face before. The force of the connection echoes across my palm. My pain is waves crashing. He's knocked backwards. His knee cracks as it hits the floor followed by a worse sound, the dull thud of his head against the coffee table. Remorse and guilt were in me before I'd even hit him, but they were nothing compared to the tidal wave that washes over me now. I I, I can't move. His eyes... His eyes... Don't open. Have I killed him? Have I killed my child? I kneel beside him. He's breathing. His head is bleeding. I've failed my job. I'm supposed to be a private eye. I'm supposed to see things. The sound of the train brings me back. I'm sitting on this pile of stones like a dragon on a mountain of golden coins. The water is agitated, the waves are all breakers and they curve over on themselves forming angry white foam. The wind slaps against my face. We're standing in a corridor. Helen is staring at me. Her eyes are wet with tears. It's silent, but there's tension in the lack of sound. Underneath the calm surface, she churns. I can see her emotions pushing against each other, but there's no violence there. I can't bear to look at this, at this... purity, I guess. There is something pure inside her, something that I can't touch. Her anger is balanced by love. Why doesn't my love balance my anger. I feel love, don't I? Why can't I overpower it? I am like him. I am just like him. I hate her. I hate her for this love. How can she be calm? I can't forgive you for this. I don't want you anywhere near him again. I hate silence so much. Do you understand? I squeeze my eyes as tightly shut as I can. I can see myself from above. There's a tear. It's warm. A warm stream pouring over ice. 
It can only melt what it touches. The rest remains numb. Ben, do you understand what I'm saying? I understand. These memories are different. They're real things, not just outlines. They're three-dimensional. They have mass. I could pick them up, cup them in my hand and throw them out into the sea. They would plop. They would sink. I would be free. But it isn't my job to throw them away. It's my job to look at them. It's time for me to really look at them. It's time for me to put all the pieces together. The fishermen are still casting their line. I wonder if they'll catch anything. I remember standing in my office. The camp bed and discarded sleeping bag don't fit properly. They invade the space, reminding me constantly of why I'm here. My desk is beside the bed. On it, Marcus smiles inside a frame. I cross to the desk and pick the picture up. I look at Marcus one last time. I turn it face down. He can't see me anymore. The coffee machine is bubbling. I pull the bottle of antifreeze from my pocket. I grabbed it out of Helen's car before leaving. I hadn't slept. I pull the bottle of antifreeze from my pocket. I grabbed it out of Helen's car before leaving. I'd huddled in the cocoon of the sleeping bag waiting for morning. I hadn't slept. I'd huddled in the cocoon of the sleeping bag waiting for morning. I want to do this in the light. I don't like the dark. The bottle seems too small. This isn't enough liquid. It won't work. The coffee is done. I pour it into my big mug. I close my eyes. When I open them, I'm crying. Why does coffee have to smell so fucking good? I pour the antifreeze into the black coffee. The smell doesn't seem to change. I raise the mug to my mouth. It feels heavy in my hand. I hold my lips against the surface of the liquid. It's warm. I remember paddling in the sea in the summer. Warm water on my skin. I take a sip. It tastes bitter. I don't know if it's the poison or the coffee. I gulp it down. There's a relief in the physical sensation to be active, to be drinking. Just a body doing something a body does. There is a stillness. I am in my body. I am alive. I'm on my knees. I don't remember falling. The light in the room has changed. There is earth under my fingernails. I have a dull taste in my mouth. There's no light here. There's hard wood in front of me. I push and it splinters away in my hands. My arms keep moving, keep shoveling. I've never used them in this way before. I hardly understand what I'm doing. I'm pushing myself upwards. I stop for a moment. I check the body. My body. It doesn't feel like mine. It feels like I've borrowed it from someone and forgotten to give it back. I'm wearing a suit, but it isn't one of my work suits. The shirt collar is too tight. It feels wrong, an unfamiliar texture. There's a tie round my neck. I want to gag, but it's a reflex I don't have. 
it fails me. I claw at the darkness. I am standing by the sea. I am dead, but I am alive. I remember everything. I can't let Helen go to jail for this. I press record. My name is Benjamin Garner. This is my suicide note. I failed to be the father I wanted to be. I failed to be the husband I wanted to be. And I don't know what else to do. I just need to remove myself. I'm the thing that doesn't work. It's selfish. It's cowardly. But I'm not strong. I forgive you, Dad. And I'm sorry. I press stop. My phone saves the video. I look down at my face, frozen on the screen. I don't play it back. I bring up an email. I attach the file. I scroll through my contacts, selecting everyone who means anything to me. I press send. The waves are a blanket of sound. They pull around me. I feel like I'm thawing. I feel like I'm thawing. I remember reading a story to Marcus. Moomintrol wakes up in the winter. His whole family are asleep. He's lonely and he's surrounded by snow, by the winter, this thing he just doesn't understand. And he gathers everything in his house together and makes a den. He burrows down into his piled up stuff and finds some comfort in being surrounded, wrapped up. He feels snug. I feel that way now. I'm above myself. I'm above myself. My body is lying on the stones. I'm not moving. I'm wearing my father's suit. To my left is the sea. To my right, a nuclear power station. The world has ended. The world has ended. Above me the sky is white. I look up into it. It blinds me. I look back down at my body for the last time. And then I'm free.
hope that the content note that I gave at the beginning of this story trod the line between revealing too much and spoiling things and preparing people for the kinds of things that might happen. It might not have done, or even if it did and you chose to listen, it still might have been more heavy than you'd expected. I mean, this is the problem. I really believe in trying to stop people from being triggered, but I also believe it's a very impossible thing to do. Christmas itself is triggering for many of us, and you can't turn that off. You can't give a content note. I mean, I guess we do know it's on its way. It's uh, it's coming up, but still, it's just it's much more complicated than that. You know, regardless of any of that, if you need help, ask for it. You'd be surprised how often people give you it. Friends are great people to ask for help from. So are any other people that you think would be good, Samaritans or any organisation that helps to talk to people who are feeling sad and lonely and suicidal and depressed or have experienced domestic abuse or the other kinds of things talked about in that story. Regular listeners to Getting Better Acquainted and uh, people who've seen my live show will know that lots of that was drawing on experiences that I've had or have and yet it was actually very unlike my life as well so please don't decide any conclusions about my life based on that. One of the things that is obviously very much on brand was my reference to the Moomins. Those are the books that Ben reads to Marcus in the story. Moomins are something that I love and the Moomins are something that I relate to uh, that I associate really strongly with Christmas in a positive way. Some of my really positive Christmas memories, and I have lots of negative ones, but I also have positive ones, and the positive Christmas memories are connected very much to my dad reading me the story of the fir tree, which is the kind of Christmas special short story from the Moomins. So this is a recording of my dad reading me that story back in the past. Back in those days, you taped them onto cassette tapes and this is from a cassette tape that's then been digitalized so the sound quality not quite as good as the rest of the episode but hopefully the sentiment and the feeling will help to kind of take some of the edge off the darkness that we've just had and also to kind of give some sense of the positive relationship with Christmas that I have since the first short story was part of the fear of passing on terrible things from generation to generation this last story is a thing that my dad passed on to me and that I have passed on to my niece and that hopefully will be passed on to other people. And in fact, I'm passing it on to you right this moment. So please pass it on to other people. And if you are the Moomin TM estate or anyone who owns any kind of copyright from Tove Janssen's products, please don't sue me. I'm really poor and I'm just a podcaster and this is something from history that I'm sharing with people and it's a, a lovely story that more people should listen to and hopefully this will only encourage people to buy Moomin's books and so ultimately be useful to the people who do own the copyright. And now, here's the story of the Moomin Christmas. In the words of Moomin Mama, real trolls are small, shy and hairy, and there are lots of them in the Finnish forests. Moomin trolls, however, are smooth, and whereas the common troll pops up only in the dark, they love the sunshine. The Moomins go to sleep in the winter, as they do not particularly care for the cold. 
They are proud of the house which they built themselves, and although alarming and extraordinary things often happen there, life is never boring, and that is a good thing. They have many curious but likable friends in Moominland, not least the Hemelins, who are a larger and somewhat thinner kind of Moomin troll. They are addicted to wearing a lot of clothes. Hemelin aunts are apt to be rather solid characters who say, Please be sensible, or wash your hands. So you see how Hemelin was easily put out. Hemelin scratched and scratched in the snow. He was wearing yellow woolen gloves, and of course before long they became very wet and uncomfortable. So he took them off and carefully placed them on the chimney stack, sighed and went on scratching. Then at last he uncovered the attic window. Ah, here it is! said Hemelin, and down there they're lying asleep, sleeping and sleeping and sleeping, and others have to work themselves to death, all because it's nearly Christmas by my tail. He stepped onto the skylight, trying to remember if it opened inwards or outwards. He stamped on it, and it immediately opened inwards. Down Hemelin tumbled into the snow and darkness, falling onto all those things which the Moomin family had stowed in the attic to use later. By now he was very much annoyed, and besides he could not quite remember where he'd put the yellow woolen gloves that he was so fond of. So he stamped down the stairs and shouted in an angry voice, It's going to be Christmas! I'm vexed with you and you're sleeping, and it's going to be Christmas any minute now! Down below all the Moomin family lay in their snug winter retreat. They had slept for several months and intended to go on sleeping until spring, the Moomins loved to forget about winter in this way. They slept as softly and comfortably as on a long, warm summer afternoon. Now sudden anxiety, or perhaps it was cold air, broke in upon Moomin's dreams. Someone was pulling the quilt off him and was shouting that it was vexed with him and that it was going to be Christmas. Is it spring already? murmured Moomin. Spring? exclaimed Hemelin irritably. It's Christmas, don't you know, Christmas, and I haven't got anything, and nothing's arranged, and then in the middle of it all they send me to dig you out. I've lost my yellow gloves, I expect, and everyone's running round in circles, and nothing's ready. And Hemelin stamped up the stairs again and climbed out of the attic skylight. Mama, wake up, called Moomin, frightened. Something awful's happened. They call it Christmas. What do you mean? said Moomin, Mama, and put out her nose. I don't know, really, said her son, but nothing's arranged and someone's lost and everyone's running round in circles. Perhaps it's the water rising again. He shook the snork maiden gently and whispered, Don't be frightened, but something awful's happened. Calm, said Moomin Papa, calm above all. And he went to wind up the clock, which had read a quarter to nine since some time in October. They followed Hemelin's wet footsteps up to the attic and stepped out on the roof of Moomin House. The sky was beautifully blue, so there was evidently no question of another volcanic eruption. But the entire valley was covered in wet cotton wool. The hills, the trees, the river, and the whole house. And it was cold, colder even than in April. Is this what they call Christmas? 
asked Mumin's mamma, surprised. She picked up a pawful of the cotton wool and looked at it. I wonder if it's grown out of the ground, she said, or fallen from the sky. If this all came down at once, how very uncomfortable it must have been. The mimble went past with a tree across her toboggan chair. So you've awakened at last, she said casually. Be sure you find a tree before it gets dark. But why? began Moomin Papa. Too busy to stop now, shouted the mimble over her shoulder and hurried on. Evidently you need a tree to be safe, Moomin Papa said thoughtfully. And the peril is coming tonight. She didn't even have time to say hello. It baffles me what it's all about. I can't understand it either, said Moomin Mamma thoughtfully, but do put on your warm socks and scarves when you go to fetch that tree, and I'll try to get a little fire going in the stove meanwhile. They walked off cautiously with stiff legs, keeping a close watch on the sky. You could not be sure that another load of cotton wool would not come tumbling down. Moomin Papa decided that in spite of the threatening catastrophe, he would not cut down one of his own trees. They were too precious. Instead, the family climbed over Mrs. Filionk's fence and selected a big tree that they decided would be of no further use to her anyway. Do you think we're meant to hide in it? asked Moomin. I don't know, said Moomin Papa, and continued chopping. I don't understand it at all. They had nearly reached the river with their tree when Mrs. Filion came rushing towards them with her arms full of bags and parcels. She was red in the face and, thanks be, too hurried and flurried to recognise her own tree. "'Oh, bother!' cried Mrs. Filion. "'Ill-bred hedgehog simply shouldn't be allowed to. As I was saying to Gaffsey just now, it's an absolute disgrace. The tree!' said Moomin Papa, clinging desperately to Mrs. Filion's fur collar. "'What are we supposed to do with our tree?' The tree? repeated Mrs. Filion, bewildered. The tree? Oh, how dreadful! What an awful bore! It's got to be dressed, of course. How on earth shall I get it done in time? She dropped her parcels in the snow. Her bonnet slipped forward over her nose, and she nearly burst into tears in her agitation. Moomin Papa shook his head and picked up the tree again. At home, Moomin Mamma had cleared the snow from the veranda got out the life-belt, the aspirin, and Moomin Papa's rifle, and had made hot fermentations. You never could tell. A little squeak was sitting on the very edge of the sofa, drinking tea. It sat in the snow under the veranda, looking so miserable that Moomin Mamma had asked it in. "'Well, here's the tree,' said Moomin Papa. I only wish I knew what it's going to be used for. Mrs. Filiong said it's supposed to be dressed.' We haven't got such big clothes, said Moomin Mamma, worried. What could she have meant? Isn't it beautiful? exclaimed the little squeak, swallowing its tea the wrong way from sheer nervousness, and was instantly sorry it had dared to raise its voice. Do you know how to dress a tree? asked the snork maiden. The squeak went as red as a beetroot and whispered, With pretty things, as prettily as you can, that's what I've heard. Then it was overwhelmed by shyness, threw its paws over its face, upsetting the teacup at the same time, and rushed to disappear through the veranda door. "'Now you must all be quiet, because I'm thinking,' said Moomin Papa. 
If the tree is to be made as beautiful as possible, we can't be meant to hide in it, but it's to pacify the peril. I'm beginning to understand what it's all about. They immediately carried the tree into the garden, planted it firmly in the snow, and began to dress it from top to bottom with all the most beautiful things they could think of. They decorated it with the shells from the summer flower beds and with the snork maiden's pearl necklace. They took down the crystals from the drawing-room chandelier and hung them on the branches, and at the top they put a red silk rose which Moomin Papa had given to Moomin Mama. Everyone brought the most beautiful things they could think of to appease the mysterious powers of the winter season. When the tree was ready, the Mimble came past again with her toboggan. This time she was going in the opposite direction and was, if possible, in an even greater hurry. Have you seen our Christmas tree? Moomin called out. Heaven preserve us, said the Mimble. But then you've always been oddities. I've got to be off. Must cook some food for Christmas. Food for Christmas? repeated Moomin, astonished. Does it have to be fed, too? The Mimble hardly listened. Do you think one can do without food for Christmas? she said impatiently and kicked off with her toboggan down the slope. Moomin Mama spent all afternoon bustling round, and just before twilight the Christmas's food was ready and arranged in small cups round the tree. There was fruit juice, yoghurt, bilberry pie, eggs, and various other things that the Moomin family liked. Do you think the Christmas is very hungry? asked Moomin Mama anxiously. He could hardly be hungrier than I am, said Moomin Papa, looking at the food longingly. But little creatures must always be very polite to the great powers of nature. He sat shivering in the snow, with the quilt drawn right up over his ears. In the valley below, lights were appearing in all the windows. They shone under the trees and on the branches, and flickering beams darted here and there across the snow. Moomin looked at his papa meaningly. All right, said Moomin papa, to be on the safe side. So Moomin went into the house and collected up all the candles he could find. He pushed them into the snow round the tree, and lit them carefully one by one until they were all burning to pacify the darkness and the Christmas. Little by little, silence fell on the valley. Maybe everyone had returned home to sit and wait for the coming peril. Only one solitary shadowy figure was still to be seen running among the trees. It was Hemelin. Hello, called Boomin softly. Is it coming soon? Don't distract me, said Hemelin gruffly. His nose was deep in the long list of things with nearly everything crossed out. He sat down by one of the candles and began to work through it. Mama, Papa, Gaffsy, he murmured, all the cousins, the eldest hedgehog, the little ones don't need anything, and Sniff didn't give me anything last year, miserable and Wamper and Auntie, this is driving me crazy. "'What's the matter?' asked the Snork Maiden anxiously. "'Presents!' exclaimed Hemelin. "'More and more presents every Christmas.' "'In a great hurry he crossed something off his list and rushed away. "'Wait!' called Moomin. "'Explain! And your gloves!' 
But Hemelin disappeared into the darkness in a hurry like everyone else, and flustered because Christmas was coming. The Moomin family went quietly into the house to look for presents. Moomin Papa chose his best trolling spoon for Pike, which lay in a very pretty box. On it he wrote, To Christmas, and then he put it out in the snow. The snork maiden pulled off her anklet, and with a sigh she wrapped it up in tissue paper. And Moomin Mama opened her most secret drawer, and brought out the book with pictures, the only picture book in the whole valley. What Moomin wrapped up was so precious and so private that no one was allowed to see it, and not even later in the spring did he disclose what he had given away. Then they all sat down in the snow and waited for the catastrophe. Time went by, but nothing happened. Only the little squeak who had been drinking tea appeared from behind the woodshed. It had brought all its relations and their friends, and they were all just as small and grey and shriveled and cold as he was. Happy Christmas, whispered the squeak shyly. You're the first one to think that Christmas is happy, said Moomin Papa. Aren't you afraid of what's going to happen when it comes? But it's here, murmured the squeak, and settled down in the snow with its relations. May we have a look? You've got such a wonderful tree. And look at all the food, said one of the relations longingly. And real presents, said another relation. All my life I've been dreaming of seeing this close too added the squeak with a sigh. Moomin Mama moved closer to Moomin Papa. Don't you think? she whispered. Yes, but supposing, objected Moomin Papa. Never mind, said Moomin. If the Christmas is angry, perhaps we can escape to the veranda. And he turned to the squeak and said, Please help yourselves. It's all yours. The squeak could not believe its ears. Slowly it advanced towards the tree, and the long lines of relations followed, their whiskers trembling with awe. They had never had a Christmas of their own before. I think we'd better be off, said Moomin Papa anxiously. Quickly they padded off to the veranda and hid under the table. Nothing happened. Cautiously they began to look out through the window. Little squeaks were sitting out there, eating and drinking and opening presents and having more fun than they'd ever had in their lives. Finally they climbed up into the tree and fixed the lighted candles on all the branches. But I think there ought to be a big star at the top, said the squeak's paternal aunt. Do you? said the squeak, looking thoughtfully at Moomin Mama's red silk rose. Does it really matter, so long as the intention's good? Yes, we ought to have got a star, whispered Moomin Mama. But of course, it's impossible. They looked up at the sky, so black and distant, but incredibly full of stars a thousand times more full than in the summer, and the biggest of them all stood right above the top of their tree. I'm rather sleepy, said Moomin Mama. 
and I'm too tired to think any more about the meaning of all this, but it seems to be turning out all right. In any case, I'm not afraid of Christmas now, said Moomin. I think Hemelin and the Mimble and Mrs. Filionk must have got things mixed up somehow. And they put Hemelin's yellow gloves on the veranda railing to make sure that he would find them, and went inside to continue their long sleep while they waited for spring to come again. I don't believe in copyright, but I understand that the law can hurt you whether you believe in copyright or not. I do believe in paying artists and supporting artists where we can through this capitalist system. And so if you have enjoyed these stories that you're listening to, then maybe you'd like to support me. You can do that. There's a PayPal donation button on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. So if you want to give me a little Christmas bonus, I could really do with that money is always good to keep making stuff but that's not why I make it I make it to connect with people because I love making stuff it may be hard sometimes but I'm lucky enough to keep doing it maybe that won't last forever if you help finance it that could help but I've been born into a life where I have enough privileges to mean that I can afford to struggle that I can take this time to try and get this stuff out there you can listen back to previous getting better acquainted takes on christmas for someone who has a complicated relationship with christmas it is interesting to note that i've made a christmas special every year since the show began they have different flavors some of them are more warm some of them are more sad some of them are mixtures of different things so have a listen back there's every kind of flavor of christmas for you to get better acquainted with So now I'm going to be taking my annual couple of weeks off. So there won't be another episode of Getting Better Acquainted until the new year. So first Wednesday of the new year, there'll be an episode which has now become an annual ritual where I kind of sum up my last year with some clips from performances that I've done and talk about where I'm going in the future, where I am now and all of that sort of stuff. So look out for that in the first week of January and then coming the week after that, we return to weekly conversations between me and people that I know. Coming up on Thursday the 18th of February at the Dog Star in Brixton, I'm doing my solo show again. It's called What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity. You can find out more about it at www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. It touches on many of the themes that are found in today's episode. And it's a stand-up tragedy presents double bill with Jambi McGrath, who's going to be doing her show about her relationship with her father and the complicated things that she found out about mental health, colonialism, violence and stuff like that, that the death of her father brought into her life. And a Getting Better Acquainted with Jambi will be coming out in the new year, so listen out for that. You can find out more about Stand Up Tragedy at www.standuptragedy.co.uk. And listen out to recent and upcoming Stand Up Tragedy episodes for a bit more news on where that show is at and what that show will be doing over the next year. You can like Getting Better Acquainted on Facebook. You can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter where it's at GBA Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter where I'm at GooseFat101. You can find 
Getting Better Acquainted, Stand Up Tragedy, and my other podcast, The Restart Project, on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all places where podcasts go to hang out on the internet. And the last thing to do is to say happy or merry Christmas to the audience. Merry Christmas, everybody. And if you can't have a Merry Christmas, then solidarity, you can get through it. It's only a few days of time. And it's okay to not be happy as well as to be happy. All of the ways of being are okay. So I wish you a happy, a merry, or whatever kind of Christmas you have. But I do think it is nice to express love or support or general kind of positivity, if you like, towards each other. So here's that sent at you to keep us warm to make some light in this darkest of seasons. Why do you have to be so nice? Why do you have to be so nice? Because Santa Claus is coming tonight. He's the
The songs at the start and the end of today's episode come from previous Getting Better Acquainted Christmas specials and were performed by me with people who are much more talented than me playing other instruments and singing along. The music, scoring, bringing things up comes from previous projects that I've worked on. So we've got a mix of stuff from the middle class bastards and the reactionaries, which means that the people who also wrote the music, as well as me that you heard, are George Brufton, Alexander Nye, and Hayley Gullen. The seagulls and the sea that you hear in this episode were actually recorded at Dungeness. <laughs>